From the book of Acts, chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. The word of the Lord. From the book of Revelation, chapter 5, starting with verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. The word of the Lord. Let's stand for the reading of our gospel. So today our gospel reading is a little longer than what we normally read, but this passage is full of a lot of what we might call in our culture Easter eggs, okay? So if you read through this, you're going to see there's some things that John is kind of poking at and pointing to us. And so as we hear, I'm going to read this through slowly, and I want you to kind of listen for those things that just kind of leap off the page to you. A reading from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 21. 
starting with verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped it into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dare, dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The gospel of the Lord. Praise you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all this morning. We are in this season of Easter or a season of Eastertide where we are celebrating resurrection. We're celebrating this new world that we're part of. And we're actually um, kind of beginning a series today. We really began it last week. I just forgot to tell you that we began it last week. But we are, we are in this series that we're calling The New World. And we're talking about the resurrection. What has changed because of the resurrection of Jesus? Christians make a bold claim. We make this claim that 2,000 years ago, God raised Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of Israel from the dead. And that means if that's true, if that's a fact, that means everything in the world is different from what we've expected it to be. Everything is radically changed. And this isn't just a doctrine we hold. 
Sometimes we think of it just that way. It's just one thing we assent to in the creed. It's not just a litmus test that we try to prove if somebody is really a Christian, if they believe this one thing or not. No, 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 no. It's not just an isolated miracle that we affirm. If it's true, it means everything's different. If it's true, it can't be written off as a fluke. It means everything's changed. The world has changed. And it means that there's hope for the world. It means that God hasn't given up on the world, but, but he's making things new because of the resurrection. We, meet, we see that. It also means a different way of viewing our relationships, okay? If resurrection is true, then that means that we can't just give up on each other, right? Even people we disagree with, right? We can't just give up that there's hope for people. We think that people are not stuck. They're not fixed, We can't just write people off as, oh, they're that kind of people in that kind of box, and they're never going to change. They're always going to be this way. No, we can't do that because of the resurrection. There's hope for reconciliation. There's hope for a new identity. We have a new identity. The church is, we are a resurrection people, and we proclaim that God is up to something, and it means that whatever has gripped us in the past whatever's held on to us, whatever false stories we believed about our lives or about the world, that those things no longer have hold over us. We're liberated from those things. So we have two stories that we read today. They were sandwiched um, in the middle was the Revelation passage, which is about giving honor and glory to the resurrected Christ. But the two stories, narratives that we read today are the stories of Saul and then this story of the redemption of Peter. And both of them are stories of complete and utter transformation. Let's begin with Saul. So if you know the, Old, or the New Testament, you know that this guy Saul actually has two names, which gets a little bit confusing. Most of us know him by Paul. He wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, okay? But this, he hadn't added that Paul name yet, so he's only known by Saul at this point in the story. And this is Saul or Paul's origin story, all right? This is where he comes from. I know we've got the... Um, Marvel kind of uh, movies in our brain right now. So you can think about this as Saul's origin story. This is where he comes from. In the beginning of his story, this guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament is not a Christian at all. He's not a follower of Jesus at all. In fact, he is a Christian persecutor. That's his story. That's where he's from. Saul is so zealous about his Christian persecuting. He's so zealous about his interpretation of the Jewish law that he is ready to persecute Christians however that he can. And so he goes to the high priest and basically asks for a warrant to go into all of the synagogues and find the Christians so that he can persecute them. That's what's going on, specifically in Damascus, this large city that he's going to. Now, remember at this time, a lot of Christians, people who follow Jesus, still worshiped in the synagogues. Because Christianity was seen as like an offshoot of Judaism, okay? So a lot of Christians, even though they're following Jesus, they're continuing to go to, temp- or to synagogue worship over and over again every week, okay? That's where they worshiped. But Saul was part of this rigid party of the Jewish establishment who believed that the Christians were heretical and were dangerous. Notice that they were called, it says in this passage, and we might skip over it, but followers of the way, Okay, so Christianity at that time, for some reason, was called the way, which sounds like a really cool urban church plant today, right? The way. Um, But that's what they were called. Um, And the emphasis, the reason why they were called this is the emphasis was on a path, on a journey, 
on a way to follow. People who followed Jesus didn't just have a doctrine, even though they did have a doctrine, but they followed a particular way of living, a particular path. That's the way they understood faith. And then something really powerful happens. Saul is going along and approaching Damascus, ready to persecute Christians. And then there's a light from heaven and he falls to the ground, right? Now, I grew up in a tradition where um, every Sunday we knew that worship was really kicking and really great when people fell to the ground, <laughs> okay? That was my background. So, so you hope that you'd go to the front of the altar and they'd pray strong enough and you'd fall to the ground, okay? I mean, that was a regular part of my experience, okay? Like the Holy Spirit's really strong if you fall down. And as I got older and began to study theology and church history, you guys know me, I'm kind of optimistic. And so I wanna go where in my tradition is the positive of that, right? And how can I kind of intersect this and find it? And, and so when you try to find biblical basis for falling down in an encounter with God, this is it. This is, this is all we got, okay? <laughs> this one story. Now, maybe we put too much emphasis in my tradition on that, but it is there. It is, um, it is there. I think everybody's okay. Yeah, cool. Um, and if you haven't heard of this practice, you're weirded out by it, um, type in Benny Hinn into YouTube and you'll find some interesting... Um, stories there. But um, so uh, a voice from heaven said, why are you persecuting me? Says this to Saul. And Saul responded, who are you, my Lord? And it's Jesus. Now notice how radical this is. Jesus appears to him in a vision. Some scholars suggest, and this is getting in the weeds a little bit, but some scholars suggest that Saul was practicing a form of Jewish meditative prayer as he's on his way to Damascus. There's this specific kind of meditative prayer in Judaism where you imagine yourself in the throne room of God in Ezekiel's vision. Okay, so Jewish people, faithful Jewish people would do this. They'd put themselves in God's throne room. And it was a way of actually seeing God or visualizing God and being able to see his face. So if you imagine that, if you think about Saul is on his way to Damascus, he's getting fired up about persecuting Christians. And so he wants to put himself in the throne room in this meditative state. And he gets there and he begins to see the face of God. He gets close to seeing the face of God. And as he sees the face of God, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. Like, that would be stunning. That would be shocking, this one who he is persecuting. So imagine all the things Saul felt in that moment. Awe, wonder, shock, shame, grief, grief of the life that has passed, of I was persecuting Christians, now this life is different. Struggle, confusion. He's wrestling with all of these things. And Jesus, in this vision, immediately gives Saul instructions to get up, to enter Damascus, the city, and then he would be told what to do. And the story tells us that Saul is blind, and he's blind for three days. So he has three days to, like, think about this thing that's happened. He's going to persecute Christians because he's so passionate about the Jewish law. That's his interpretation of the Jewish law. He goes, all of a sudden, Jesus of Nazareth himself appears to him in a vision, and now he's struck blind. He's helpless. He's vulnerable. He doesn't know what to do, and he has three days now of not seeing to think about it. And it says he didn't eat or drink for three days. He is in prayer and fasting. God, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to believe? Everything I thought about Jesus is a lie. And I wonder if he's going through the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures in his head, trying to piece all this together. How could Jesus be 
the Messiah and the risen Lord. How, how does this work? This experience simultaneously confirmed everything Saul knew about God and upended everything Saul knew about God in the same moment. It confirmed it in the sense that it was the fulfillment of Israel's story, everything Israel had longed for, and yet it completely shifted it because it was Jesus, the one who he had been persecuting. Saul had given his life to this story, and this is how it was being fulfilled. The one true God has fulfilled his promise through Jesus. Now, we rightly call this a conversion, okay? Conversion for Saul. But I look at this and I go, conversion is not strong enough language. <laughs> this is like a volcanic eruption that's happening. It's not like he went, I'm going to become a Christian today. This is like a change of everything. Everything was different from that point forward. And this, I want to suggest, is what following Jesus means. That we can't add Christianity as a tack-on to our life. You've heard me say this before, but it's not that I'm a Christian and I go to church I go and I work out at this gym. I have my insurance from State Farm. I do, you know, it's not one of many things in our life. It upends everything. It changes everything. It changes how we define ourselves and how we see the world. Now, Saul is in this place of incredible vulnerability. So he's physically blind and his physical blindness reflects his spiritual blindness as well. Saul is forced to trust to lean on his weakness rather than his confidence. But Saul is not the only one in this story who has to trust. There's also a guy named Ananias. And the Lord appears to Ananias in a vision and he tells him to go find Saul on Straight Street, which I, I love that name for a street. I'm like, maybe there's this one street in Damascus that was straight and everything else was crooked. So go to Straight Street and go find Saul and uh, talk to him. But Ananias surely knows about Saul. He knows that this guy is the guy persecuting Christians. And not only that, he knows this guy's been deputized by the high priest to go and kill Christians. So Ananias is like, God, you want me to go <laughs> to the one guy who's supposed to come here to kill me and volunteer myself to help him. Seriously, think about the trust that was involved in that. In that. I couldn't help but think about persecuted Christians around the world today. That many, there are many in our world who worship in hiding, who worship underground, who are meeting in the bottom of local cafes or in homes. My mind particularly went to the city of Mosul in Iraq. Um, if you don't know their story, Iraq had a thriving and growing church. Um, it was mostly kind of liturgical, traditional believers, but they were growing and they were thriving and it was an expanding church. And then when ISIS began to gain steam and eventually just ran over, mowed down the entire city of Mosul and took over it, the church was destroyed. I've showed you before that picture of a few saints the week after they had been destroyed by ISIS, the church had been destroyed, gathering in the remnants of a building around an altar, worshiping on Palm Sunday. I think about these kinds of Christians and the, thankfully the church is growing again. The, the situation in Iraq has changed, but, um, but what if God asked one of them to go to the one who kills all the Christians, the one who sanctioned, was sanctioned by the religious minister of the government to do so and to basically out yourself as a Christian. Can you imagine the trust involved in that? If God told you to do that, 
There's so much being asked of Ananias. But it's not just Ananias. It looks like there's, there's a community that's involved in greeting Saul here. So Ananias doesn't just do this by himself. The church is challenged to go to this guy who persecuted Christians and to offer hospitality. They brought the coffee and the muffins or the equivalent to this persecutor guy and says, here, we're here to offer this to you. Can you imagine that? But God says to Ananias, go for he, Saul, is an instrument whom I've chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings, before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. When God talks about Saul's mission, he talks about it in the context of suffering. That Saul was once the instrument to bring about suffering for God's people, but Paul himself will be called to suffer for the gospel. I know I've said this a lot, but suffering is at the heart of our faith. That's hard for us to know because we think of ourselves in 21st century America that we're in a Christian nation, right? That in some ways it's easy to call ourselves a Christian. But living Christianly is very countercultural. Living in this way of faith, hope, and love is different. It's hard to grow churches talking too much about suffering, isn't it? <laughs> we like to talk about prosperity and blessing and all these things. When you go say, come to our church, come and die, <laughs> that doesn't feel really attractive, does it? But that is the Christian faith. Give up yourself. Take on something new. The way of Jesus is so countercultural, it will always bump against the false stories that we believe. And yet Ananias is faithful, and the church is faithful here. He prays for Saul to receive the Holy Spirit. Scales fall off of Saul's eyes. His sight is restored. And then it says he gets baptized. He gets something to eat. And then he goes to the synagogues. And he goes this time not to snuff out or persecute Christians, but he goes to proclaim Jesus as the son of God. That's a transformation. That's a change. And it only makes sense. This kind of transformation only makes sense in light of the resurrection. This is only something that God could do. This change was not pragmatic. It didn't make logical sense, okay? We tend to think about life change as happening slowly because often it does. Slowly our eyes are opened. But God is capable of doing an all at once radical change as he does here. And if you continue to read the story, you see that Saul's mission is really unique. So Saul comes this radical Jewish um, establishment kind of figure who is lobbying for this very conservative view of the Jewish law. And his call after he becomes a Christian is to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles, to the pagans, to those who are far away. Now that's always baffled me. That's always confused me. God is about to do something through Paul. God's plan has always been, and I'm using the word Saul and Paul interchangeably. You're gonna forgive me here. He has two names. The God's plan has always been for the call to go outside to pagans and to Gentiles. That's always been God's heart. And God would use the most unlikely person, the most unlikely candidate to carry out this mission. In fact, N.T. Wright says of this passage, when you, when you wanna reach the pagan world, the person to do it will be a hardline, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, super-orthodox, Pharisaic Jew. And then they say that God doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> Think about if there was someone who was from a radical Christian sect. Think about this for a minute. 
They were part of the Fred Phelps group that holds up signs that says God hates all kinds of people, right? Um, They went to Bob Jones University, maybe. You know, they went to kind of these more fundamentalists. And if they came to a different kind of faith in Christ, let's say they came to our church, they were radically transformed, they understood God's grace in a different way that changed their life. What would we do? Well, we would probably say, well, since you come from that background, go back to those people, (laughs) right? And help tell them about the grace and love of God. Like convert, that's your mission. Of course it is. That's the practical mission. But think about this instead. Think about God calling them right after their transformation to be planted in an urban area in the United States full of people who are mostly humanistic, atheist, and agnostic. We would go, no, no, that doesn't make sense. They don't understand that. Somebody else will be called to that. This is a radical thing. This is different. Paul's mission is not to the rigid Jewish groups, but to the pagans. God calls us to things often that don't make sense because resurrection doesn't make sense. Resurrection is something we can't do. Only God can do that. It's never pragmatic. And the church is invited to participate in this in a very simple and important way. So first of all, we see that Paul is baptized. So the church baptizes Paul, okay? Baptism is the entrance right into the church. It is our first word of welcome. There's a reason, I haven't talked about this in a while, but there's a reason why we include a small bowl of water at the entrance of our church. It's to remind us of baptism every Sunday. It's the first thing that greets us when we walk in, and it's the last thing when we leave. Many of us may pass by it without a thought, but it's there to remind us each Sunday to catch our attention to the fact that God's first word to us is transformation, is forgiveness, is welcome and acceptance. For those who have been baptized, this is a reminder of that reality. It's a reminder of your new identity. And for those who haven't, it's a calling of grace. It's a beckoning to receive that word of grace in your life. But baptism is not something that we do. It's something that God does. In baptism, we walk out cleansing from our shame. We wash off the old life. We die with Christ and we take on a new life. And we have to be reminded of that constantly. We have to remember that new identity. Think about Saul for a moment. He went under the water as the persecutor, the one who whispered murderous threats, as the text says. But he came up as part of God's new creation. God did something that changed him. He didn't change himself. We need to remember our new identity, the ways that God has changed us. Because I wanna suggest we are constantly told to define ourselves by all different kinds of other things, by success, by how the world sees power, by what other people think about us, by how good we are at X, Y, and Z, all of these kind of things. And this is a constant reminder to say, no, you have a baptismal identity. You are new life in Christ. You are new creation. I'm sure Saul constantly wrestled with this thing, even after he was a Christian. Well, you know, you're always gonna be that persecutor. You're never gonna quite be good enough because of what you did back there. And yet he has a new life. I love that the church then makes sure he has something to eat. So very practical thing. You could think of this kind of as an image of Eucharist that we're going to receive, but I think it's okay to just think of it in terms of they're trying to make sure his physical needs are met. It's hospitality here. 
Walls come down when we eat with each other. It opens the door for fellowship. So I love that when people walk in here every Sunday at sacrament, they are greeted with baptism and with food. (laughs) They're greeted with water and they're greeted with food, right? Every Sunday. Only God can change and transform people. That's not something we do. But the church is called to open our doors, to open our arms, and to extend grace as God transforms people. The second, second story that we see here is the story of Peter. And this is the second story of mission resurrection that we have today. Something significant happens in John 21. Um, some people say that we should read this story as the epilogue of John's gospel. So like the story reached its climactic conclusion in John 20, which we read last week, where Thomas, who was doubting before, he sees the nails in his hands, in Jesus' hands and in his side, and he says, my Lord and my God. That's kind of where John's gospel, the curtains are supposed to close, that it ends, it's this climactic moment. But then we have, you can kind of think of it this way, we have these stories that are kind of like bonus scenes again, at the end of like a Marvel movie or something, Marvel movie, um, they, they reveal some dramatic things about what has just happened and what might happen in what's to come. You guys like how like contextual I'm getting today? Like how, that's really good. Um, but all of these scenes, like in a lot of these scenes, there are kind of like, I mentioned it before, but Easter eggs in this story, things that point us to other parts of the story. They give us literary hints about powerful things that are going on. And there are so many in this passage, like the whole thing is filled with it that we can't mention all of them today. But the story begins with something really ordinary. Peter just wants to go fishing. Um, Jesus has appeared to them by this point through locked doors. He's given them peace. He's breathed the Holy Spirit on them. But at this point, it's like, okay, resurrection's happened. And if you're the disciples, you're going, what are we supposed to do now? (laughs) Like Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to us. I don't know if you've ever had something in your life that was amazing or world altering or life shaking. Maybe you had a new job or a baby or a marriage. And at some point you're so disoriented to the world. You're like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, what, what's the next step? How does life look like here? And so then you say, well, I guess I have to go to work now, to go back to work. So we see this miraculous story where the disciples go, all right, we're just going to go back to fishing. That's what we know. But they can't seem to catch anything. And Jesus greets them with this simple greeting, like, how are you doing? Have you caught anything yet? Again, notice the food theme. Are you all okay? Do you have what you need? Jesus has this idea, just they're the professional fishermen, but Jesus has this idea. Throw your nets on the other side. Try this, guys. Throw your nets on the other side and see if that works. If I'm the disciples, I'm rolling my eyes at this point. I'm going, you don't think we've tried that already? They catch then when they do this, they catch so many fish, they can't even reel it in. We don't know why they say it was 153 fish. I don't know why John feels it's necessary to tell us exactly how many fish it was, but that's neither here nor there. But when Peter realizes that it's Jesus, so they don't know it's Jesus at first, but when he realizes it's Jesus, he jumps in after him. Now, if you know Peter's personality, we've talked about this before, but Peter is quick to action. He's quick to move. We know this about him. In every situation in the Gospels, he's quick to act. And it's probably his greatest strength and his greatest weakness. He's ruled by instinct. Whatever instinct tells him to do, he does instantly. But instincts do not always serve Peter well. 
On the night of the Last Supper, Peter had insisted, even if everybody else betrays him, everybody else falls away, I will remain, Peter says. But Jesus then predicts that even before the rooster crows, Peter will deny him three times. And then Peter was in the courtyard of Caiaphas as we see this story play out while Jesus is on trial before the high priest. It was a cold night and Peter and the others were warming themselves by a charcoal fire. Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times. And it says the third time he cusses about Jesus. He swears about him because he's so fed up with people asking him about him. So after Jesus rose from the dead, the gospels tell us the disciples are filled with joy. So we assume Peter is filled with joy too. That's the primary emotion. But if you're Peter, you also have, in addition to joy, you have this sense of shame and of dread. I remember what I did. I remember that I denied him. So it's complicated. And and maybe it's because it's so complicated that he says, I want to go back to the normalcy of fishing because I'm excited about this, I'm joyful about this, but I also feel such shame for what I did. I don't think it's that Peter is afraid of Jesus. By now, Peter knows that Jesus is the savior. He's the one who forgives and who loves him completely. But I think Peter doesn't know, how do I think about myself? How could I do such a thing to my Lord and my savior? So we see this story where Jesus eats with them. It's a real meal among real friends. In fact, John's gospel is really real. It's really fleshy. John goes to great lengths to show us just how real Jesus is. His resurrected body has scars of suffering. And then his resurrected body eats real fish and shares it with the disciples, caught by real fishermen. And here, I imagine, as Jesus calls out to them, the passage actually says, breakfast is ready, says to them and they're sweaty, and they smell of fish. This is all really real that's going on here. So they're sitting around a charcoal fire. Think about that for a minute. When Peter betrayed Jesus just a little while ago, he was warming his hands by a charcoal fire. Here, after the resurrection, Jesus has gathered the disciples, and they're eating around a charcoal fire. I'm sitting there if I'm Peter and I'm smelling the charcoal fire and I'm remembering that moment. I'm going, oh, this is so awkward. How am I supposed to think about myself? Remember when I did that and now I just sit around and act like everything is okay? Do you think he'll bring it up, the whole betrayal thing? Or should I bring it up? Like, what am I supposed to do? And all along the smell of charcoal is reminding him of his greatest failure. Jesus makes the first move. And we should remember that he always does. He says, Simon, son of John, I'm gonna ask you to uh, just block out the, the alarm. There we go, great. So Jesus makes the first move. Jesus always makes the first move. God's move is always grace, okay? He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? This phrasing is important for a few reasons. The the name that he calls him is the same name that he called him at the very beginning when he told him to lay down his nets and follow him. Simon, son of John, he calls him. Love me more than these is often translated a few different ways, but most scholars say he's hearkening back to when Peter said, if all of these fall away, I never will. Okay, Saying, do you love me more than these? Is that still your commitment to me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus replies, feed my lambs. 
if we did this today, like, <laughs> I remember um, when Ashley and I were first married, I was just being goofy. You know, you do these kind of things. And said, uh, Ashley, do you love me? Just being silly, right? And she said, yes. I said, feed my sheep, right? <laughs> like, we don't say this stuff today, right? <laughs> we don't say this kind of stuff. You still don't say that stuff. I just weirded people do. But, uh, but he says, do you, do you love me more than these? And then he says, feed my sheep. And he says this over and over again. After a little while, Jesus says to him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. Then Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this point, the text tells us Peter is really hurt. Like, what more can I say? I've already told you that I love you. You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. This isn't just a way of Jesus saying, Peter, I forgive you. It's cool. Like, it's fine. Don't worry about it, bud. Everything's all right. No, this is a way of somehow God making Peter new again. He's a new man. He's been recreated. Peter is now called to be the shepherd of the church, the community around Jesus. And that's why Peter's asked this question three times. Think about it. He denied Jesus three times by a charcoal fire. And here he professes his love to Jesus three times at a charcoal fire. Jesus is somehow undoing, redeeming, reversing Peter's denials here. This is absolutely incredible. The one who denied God the most publicly and strongly is the first pastor in his new church. Hmm. This is another instance where Jesus is not being very practical. If I were Jesus, I would not trust Peter. He's impulsive. He doesn't seem to be very wise. Throughout the Gospels, he isn't just impulsive. He's wrong a lot. Fleming Rutledge is an author I love. She says this, And so we see that there, was, there is no crime so atro- atrocious, no shame so abysmal, no failure so profound as to put us beyond the transforming power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing. There is nothing. We must not limit the power of God. If this story tells us anything, it's by the resurrection, people do change. Nothing is too far gone. So what does this mean for us in closing today? These two stories, as we look at them together and we look at transformation and reversal, and we look at this idea of those who turned away from God have been now empowered on mission for God. Well, I think it changes the way that we see others. It tells us that persecutors can become apostles, that deniers can become pastors. Many of you may be here and you feel trapped by a previous identity You think that I'll just never get my act together. I'll never be able to escape my past. You hold on to some kind of shame. Shame is this feeling of unworthiness, of brokenness because of something we've done, but even deeper, more of who we are. Often when we talk about guilt, guilt is part of that, but it's feeling bad about something that we've done. Shame is actually feeling bad about who we are, the brokenness that we carry in our lives. We think if they really knew this about me, If God even really, you know, thought this about me, then there's no way that I could ever be used by him. The resurrection shows us that's not the final word. And it's it's only as we have experienced God's grace in our lives that we're able to be empowered for God's mission 
Notice the two animal images in this story. Fish in this latter story. Fish and sheep. God's people are those who fish for people. We saw that in other places. Jesus says, you'll be fishers of men or fishers of people. So we reach out. God's people are always reaching out with God's word. We extend God's grace. We reach out in what we call evangelism, telling people the good news of the gospel. And and then also we tend, we lead, we care, we nurture. That's the beauty of our story. The fishers of people and the feeders of sheep are the ones who themselves have been healed, who have been transformed by the grace of God. We are not on mission because we're good enough. God does not call us because we're good enough. We are on mission because we've been liberated by the resurrection. And our mission, our calling, is not a calling of comfort or prosperity or happy endings. This is a difficult path. God said about Paul that he would suffer many things. Jesus told Peter he would be led around a lot of places that he didn't want to go. This life of the Christian is a life of laying ourselves down and trusting in God. And all along, Jesus says, follow me. Peter is now the first pastor, but his mission and the mission of the church is only right as he follows Jesus, as we follow Jesus but that is the better path. So the question for us Jesus asks today is, is do you love me? Do you love me? He doesn't ask if we've been good. Have you been good this week? (laughs) No. He doesn't ask if we've earned enough points, okay? He doesn't ask if we've followed the rules. He simply says, do you love me? Do you love me? And today we we respond, Lord, you know that we love you. We trust you. We put our life in your hands. So today, breakfast is ready, as Jesus would say. May we know God's grace at the core of our being. May it change and transform who we are. May we live as baptizers, as breakfast servers, as fishers of people, and as tenders of sheep, all because his resurrection changes everything. Amen. Amen.